1: The 76th edition of the Vuelta starts in the northern Spanish town of Burgos this weekend. The Vuelta is the youngest of the Grand Tours and sometimes it's the easiest to overlook. On this edition, we applaud the Vuelta for its willingness to change and experiment and hear about the latest unlikely climb to be dragged into the limelight by the race organisers. Cattle grids? Bring them on. And author Tim Moore has completed his own Grand Tour journey by riding the route of the 1941 Vuelta in the tyre tracks of the remarkable, if not very likeable, Julian Berendero. This is Ruler Conversations, brought to you by LACA, bicycle insurance powered by the community. Why does the Vuelta sometimes feel like the poor relation of the other Grand Tours? Well, who better to ask than Olga Abalos, editor of Ruler's Spanish sister magazine, Volata?
2: I think La Vuelta has uh, two main problems. One is the calendar, because La Vuelta has always been changing when it's happening during the season. That means that it's somehow like a bit lost there. And also, the other reason could be it's difficult for la vuelta to find its own personality comparing to uh, giro or tour de france i mean when we talk about tour de france everybody knows uh, how is the tour de france what it means tour de france and it's the same with the giro everybody knows what kind of race is it etc etc but with la vuelta if somebody asks you what kind of race is la vuelta you have to take few seconds to think about it because it is still building its own personalities.
1: If you were sort of selling La Vuelta to um, other people, what would you say are its strong points? What, what are the good things about it?
2: I think a good thing of La Vuelta is that they are not afraid of experiment with uh, distances, with profiles, with stages with the kind of stages they can they can propose because of that because precisely because they they have to offer something different uh from zero and and the tour de france so i think it's that um that fresh view about what a stage uh race can offer i think this is the best thing of la vuelta
1: a lot of people will have a sort of understanding as you say of how the Tour de France fits into uh, French life and the Giro in Italy. How is La Vuelta um, viewed by the Spanish public compared to, say, football or the Olympics?
2: Well, it is a very tricky question to <laughs> to answer because I'm sure that uh, since I'm based in Barcelona, I see La Vuelta maybe from a different point of view, that if I was based in in Andalusia, in the south of Spain, or even in Madrid, Spain—it's a so diverse country that it's um, it's difficult to see La Vuelta as the the race that everyone can feel identified with. So you can see uh, the north of Spain, which is very different from other areas of of the country. You can see the middle of the Spain, which is a uh, it's an area that there is nothing. So it's like like a desert flatlands without a tree, very windy, no mountains. And then you can see the sea, obviously, because the sea, it's a very important thing in in Spain. So somehow in terms of uh, landscaping, (laughs) to put it in those words, it really represents what Spain is. Then, then, then you have the feeling. Then you have to talk about the feeling. If people feel La Vuelta like the home race, um, could be.
1: Uh, traditionally um, in Spain, I think you know the cycling has been focused in in particular areas. In particular, you know the um, País Basco, the, um, the the Basque Country. Is that still the case, or is it much more a sort of a nationwide sport and activity now?
2: I think. Cycling is everywhere in Spain. But the thing is that people feel in the Basque country, for instance, they feel like uh, cycling is like a culture, like a way of life. And they have like a strong community around cycling. They have uh, cycling schools, they have uh, like a bigger structure. That also happens in other areas of Spain, like for instance, uh, Valencia, Alicante, or Castellón or even in Mallorca in, in, in Balearic Islands, there's a, a big tradition, but maybe they don't have uh, they are not so passionate to communicate that to the world. But but it's there. If you scratch it, if you scratch it, it's the, the cycling is It's all over Spain.
1: You talked about the experimentation uh, around the route, and one of the things that um, the race has done recently, uh, in particular, is looked for new steep climbs. And this year, I think, towards the end, um, there's the Lagos de Covadonga, which um, we've seen before, but also the Hamonetero, which I must admit I I don't know anything about, but I imagine it's steep.
2: It is very steep it's like 15 kilometers uh, over 9.8 it's like a monster it's um it's one of those uh climbs that la vuelta tries to discover every every year and uh and at some point when when you are climbing the this uh, this mountain you can see all those i don't know how to how to call it in english but uh you know those like holes Uh, on the ground that avoids uh, all the cows and animals to to cross. I
1: think in English we call it cattle grids, yeah?
2: Yeah, so there's a lot, there's few of them at the climb, so that means it's not a climb (laughs) ready for cycling, it's just, you know, it's for for people that live in in the countryside. It will be a quite interesting uh, climb because when nobody knows that climb, there's like an excitement around. So that means that can make people feel more insecure or that can make, you know, that all the things can happen in the in the race.
1: And there's still a few of those stages, I think, looking at the map, where you know, people ride for a long time in the flat and the August heat and, and and nothing much happens, just long, straight roads. There's a few of those, isn't there?
2: Yeah, yeah, there's a few of them. But hopefully La Vuelta tries to not to link many, many stages like this, like they used to do in the, pa- in, in the past. You know, when, when, the, when you have to do a transition from the north to the south, I mean, there's no other way. You have to cross Spain. So in the past, maybe, I don't know, uh, 10 years ago, you could see, you know, like maybe three, four, five stages where nothing happened, what <laughs> nothing happened, and and of course it happens something because people has fatigue, they got tired, they got nervous, and at the end of the race you can, I mean you can notice that in the in in the riders watching the TV, watching the race on TV, it's quite it's quite boring. So the La Vuelta, I think. They, they try to avoid that. But Spain, it is what it is. So you cannot jump. You cannot do like, oh, well, you can do it. But they <laughs> they prefer not to do that big jump from the no- north to, to the south.
1: Uh, Primoz Roglic um, won last year and the year before that. Um, I imagine that he starts in Burgos as the uh, favourite for this year as well.
2: Yeah, I think he will try to win his third Vuelta because since he had to leave Tour de France due to a crash. yeah. la Vuelta, after the, the Olympic Games, is his main objective of this, of this year. So I'm sure he will, he will try to win. But also Ineos. Ineos has a great team with Carapaz and negan Bernal. So I think we'll see a Jumbo Visma versus Ineos fight. And we shouldn't forget about Miguel Landa, that he's, he had a good comeback in Vuelta Burgos to be honest i don't think mikel landa can win a big race to be honest this is my my <laughs> this is my feeling but we love to see him attacking and fighting for for that uh, for that dream you know and we we want to see mikel landa on fire in this world. we
1: we'll look forward to that uh, thank you for taking time to talk to us olga abalos of uh, Volata magazine
2: it's been a pleasure thank you ian This is
1: Ruler Conversations, brought to you by Lacquer. Lacquer’s collective cover is made especially for cyclists, from the coffee and cake rider to the crit racer. Lacquer has transformed traditional insurance. No more fixed upfront premiums. Instead, your monthly contributions are based on the collective's claims that month. Your maximum monthly price is capped, but the savings are all yours. Plus, 80% of your money goes straight back into the lacquer collective, fixing, replacing and helping. And the other 20% keeps their wheels spinning. It's as simple as that. Claims are handled by their team of cycling experts and usually agreed within a day. With no depreciation or excess, they've ditched annual contracts with lacquer. If you want to leave, you can anytime. If you head over to www.lacker.co, new customers can get their first 30 days free by signing up today with the discount code RULER.
2: Why, hello there. Podcast interruption alert, but I will only take a few short moments to say that if you're enjoying this podcast, you will love the regular magazine. So if you're not a reader already, then you can subscribe at Riller.cc for as little as six pounds per month. If you don't speak Northern Irish, that's six times 100 pennies. And for the price of a few coffees, you get regular columns from the wonderful Ned Bolting, myself, or Shino, and some of the very finest independent cycling journalism there is, all wrapped up in a wondrously beautiful publication. Go to ruler.cc. I'll leave you to it.
0: Hello, Ian. Hello, Ian. So are you here, then? I'm here, Ian, to tell you about Curators of craft. They're a Yorkshire-based company specialising in small-batch craft beers and Trappist ales. You can either make your own selection from their range of hand-picked, quality independent beers, or leave Kate and Graham's impeccable taste buds to do the choosing with their curated boxes. They're massive cycling fans who also love brilliant beer. Two of our favourite things, Ian. What was that? That, my friend, was the sound of a can of Nye Rye IPA from Sweden's Stigbäts Brewery. Absolutely delicious, hazy, hoppy, New England-style beer at a punchy 7%, but smooth as you like. That sounds lovely.
1: Um, I've still not received my selection, though.
0: Yeah, sorry about that. But the good news is there's a 15% off code for RULER listeners. Go to curatorsofcraft.co.uk and use the code RULER15 for your first order over £40. Delivery is fast to both the UK and Europe.
1: Cheers, Ian. Schol. Tim Moore has made some ambitious, perhaps ill-advised, bike journeys in his time. He rode the route of the 2000 Tour de France for his book French Revolutions and the 1914 Giro on a vintage bike for Geronimo. He's now completed his Grand Tour trilogy by attempting the route of the 1941 Vuelta, the longest in its history. And Tim, we'll talk about why you chose that particular route in a minute. But first of all, um, you did ride the four and a half thousand kilometres around Spain right in the middle of a global pandemic, which must have made it even harder.
3: Looking back now, it just seems utterly implausible that I was allowed to do it, frankly, and... uh... Yeah, so I, I I was sitting there at home and I had this had this idea during our stage the early lockdown about uh, anyway I, I kind of started doing a bit of cycling and then reading all my backlog of old cycling books and chance upon this story. But I thought, well, I can't do that now. Who's going to go to Spain? Because at the time, you know, uh, as as desperately badly ravaged as as the UK was, Spain was. It was even an even worse situation. And apart from being logistically impossible, it also seemed really quite insensitive to be considering going around this, this ravaged country, but um, things sort of opened up a bit. And as soon as they were happy to take foreigners in there, I just sort of rocked up to Madrid and, and got going. But um, yeah, I was, I was pretty much the only foreigner in the whole of Spain, which which is obviously extraordinary for a country that is so dependent on, on tourists and, you know, hoteliers would, would uh, I mean, okay, a lot of hotels were just completely closed. On the one hand, you could see that, you know, that they would be delighted to have an actual guest. And then, but this actual guest is, is covered in crap and is smelly and he's got this like filthy old bite with him. Oh, and you could see these conflicting emotions battling it out on their face.
1: Uh, I mentioned the 1941 Welter, which was won by. Uh, Julian Berendero um it, it took place uh while the rest of europe was uh busy with world war 2 and spain was was still in shock from its own civil war and what comes across is quite how horrific that war was did you have any idea of of what was going on in 1941 when you, when you chose that particular route
3: i didn't really and i, I think as as you kind of mentioned there that um Events in other parts of Europe kind of tended to distract me when I was learning about such things, um, you know, so, I, you know, the Second World War, yes, Spanish Civil War, okay, well, you know, just sort of happened a bit before the Second World War, and then, then it was all, all over, and then this, uh, you know, old General Franco came in. I didn't know exactly, I didn't take on board the fact that there was this country that was ruled by this, you know, really horrible dictator who... I mean, obviously it was a civil war, so civil wars are always more just distressing all round and, and, and difficult all round for the people who live through them than ordinary wars because, you know, you're fighting against your own people. More people died in the civil war, uh, not in actual fighting, but from being rounded up by death squads from one side or the other, generally Franco side, it has to be said, and, uh, you know, shot in the head and pushed down a well. And that was, you know, that was hundreds of thousands of people. The idea of holding a, a kind of grand tour in the middle of a world war seems uh, unusual. Um, you know, they, they, they thought, OK, well, we, we want an international element here. So, again, a mm, bit, bit tricky in the Cirque. So they managed to get this, these, these four Swiss riders from their fellow neutrals, Switzerland, and then just sort of pen together this itinerary, but you know, the, Spain couldn't really support this. There was there was no food, and half half the places they went to, there was they were oh oh right, there's a there's a you know kind of thirty two hungry cyclists outside, uh, you know, and, and so some places they literally they'd had to send them on their way in the morning without without any food. It was terrible roads, you know, ten punctures a day, all the other things which make any old bike race kind of seem to our eyes utterly implausible. Um, were just horribly magnified by by the by the situation. And the
1: 1941 welter was won by uh, Julian Berendero, um, and he's the central character of the book in some ways, his story. And I have to admit, he was a new name to me. Um, he was the winner of the welter, um, a fascinating character, but. By all accounts, not a very likeable one.
3: Well, I, I discovered his story. Like I say, I was just reading the a, a general, the only published history of the Welter in any language. It's a very good book called Viva la Welter, English language book, which just goes through year by year of all the Welters. And very early on, it was the 1941 Welter. Oh, okay. So this guy won it. I hadn't exactly, like you, I'd never heard of him. Um, oh, what's this? Oh, so he was in France, having just competed in the Tour de France when the Civil War broke out. The civil war actually got going while while him and his Spanish teammates were, you know, actually coming to the fore. And he was he ended up king of the mountains in the 1936 Tour de France. But by the time the tour de, that that tour had ended, he couldn't go home because there was this full on civil war at which Franco was already uh, winning. And he had you know him and his teammates being Republicans, anti-Francoists, had given a few because obviously the French were quite... Quite excited about this development and talked to the riders in a, in a, you know, went beyond their sporting remit to ask some questions about the, the turmoil in their homeland. Old Berendero and his mates kind of said, well, yeah, we're, we're children of the Republic. Um, you know, Franco is, is a bad man kind of thing. And so he realised he couldn't go home. Stayed in France racing for a few years. Then World War II came along so thought, oh, probably OK now to go home because his other teammates had gone home. And they got in a bit of trouble and had to kind of licences revoked for a year and couldn't race for a bit and so on. So he, he sort of went home and thought he could just uh, reintegrate himself. And instead, um, "I think because he was by that stage the, the best cyclist in Spain, the most well-known cyclist in Spain. He'd been king of the mountains in the in the Tour in thirty-six, uh, and then he'd won the stages in the in the subsequent tours and so on. So he was a big, he was a big name. So I think they wanted to make an example of him. So he gets arrested as soon as he gets his train crosses the border in Spain, gets arrested and gets put in a succession of, of uh, concentration camps um, for for eighteen months, and then." Is recognised one morning by the one of the camp commanders at this place is in a camp down near Cadiz in the south of Spain, and he says, "Oh, are you come come into my office." Uh, sort of roll call in the morning. He thinks, "Oh, well, I probably probably won't, won't to be seen again now because that's generally what happened when you were called out of the roll call." And this guy shuts the door and says, "I'm sorry. Are you are you Julian Berendero?" Like the, the cyclist, he said, "Oh, you probably don't remember me, but I was an amateur. We, we raced together before the war. Uh, anyway, here, have my breakfast and all this stuff." So obviously, Baron Derry never really talked about this until his the last interview he ever gave, like two years before he died in 1995. Um, because he was still just too scared about you know, kind of I suppose if you if you learn to keep your peace under a dictatorship for forty years, you don't old habits die hard. From what you'
1: found, um it seems like Berendero is 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 not really remembered in Spain, not even by cycling fans.
3: No, he's not really. And as I say, I'm not sure whether part of the fact that he's not really remembered is because you know he was a a, a champion in in a distant era. But I think also because he was emblematic of a very difficult period in Spanish history. And as I discovered, you know, I go into a bike shop in my pathetically stunted Spanish because I had I had a Berendero bike because after he retired in the traditional way, I opened up a bike shop in Madrid and sold bikes with his name on them. I mean, they weren't... You know, most of them were just rebadged, kind of mass market. Mine was actually a very nice, sort of a uh, pretty bespoke one with, uh, you know, five three one tubing and Campagnolo bits on it and stuff. So it was quite a nice bike. Had his name, I think, in eleven places on it. And I'd go into a bike shop to, you know, get something fixed or buy a helmet because I'd forgotten to bring one and I kept getting stopped by the police. <laughs> and I'd say, "Oh, Berendaro," and they'd like, "What?" And I just thought, okay, it was a long time ago. But then I realized after a while that, you know, yeah, even young people. Still, do not want to talk about the civil war. It's still too painful, still too divisive. You know, I mean, at the end of the day, their, their grandparents would have been, you know, kind of killing each other about it. So I can understand why. But I guess he's just from that very difficult period of history. So it's just all gets I mean, there is a, an actual Spanish phrase for it: the pact of forgetting about that whole era. And I think he's just been swept under a cop under the carpet a bit. Although, as as you asked me earlier, um, it may also have been the case that he wasn't terribly nice, and it's difficult for me because, on the one hand, this guy is—you know—he's my guiding light, he's my hero, and when I sort of gradually realised that he was a bit of a bastard, there was a "oh, that's that's a shame," but actually, no, I I I I loved him all the more for it because because he was such <laughs> such a tarnished, compromised. Character because he
1: was always picking fights with other riders and officials and anyone, wasn't he?
3: Yeah, he had, he had no concept at all. I think, I mean, as he said, oh, well, the, the Spanish were never good at, at riding in teams, but he, I mean, he forget that he actually rode against his own team repeatedly throughout his entire career. He would literally ride them off the road and pull them back by the jersey have physical fist fights after the race. He, he, all, all of the things which we think of as the hallowed traditions of, of cycling, like, while well, you're in a breakaway, take your turn at the front. Uh, you know, uh, at the end of the race, everyone divides their winnings in the team. Like, no, he wouldn't do any of that. He said, I've done all the riding. I'm going to take all the money. Uh, I'm in a breakaway with, like, you know, in, the, in his 36 tour, he's in a breakaway with, you know, people, that, the, the great names of world cycling People have won previous tour winners and, and, you know, then he refuses to do any work in the breakaways. (laughs) It's so funny.
1: He wasn't a likeable man, but, you know, by one of the things that does stand out about him was he had a a particularly hard and horrible life, didn't he? Along with many other people at the time. But he had had some resentments, but probably some deserved resentments.
3: Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, you can see... You could see why he might be a, a bitter man because you know, like I say, he, he was twenty-seven, I think, when he got uh, banged up in the concentration camp, and he was eighteen months, and that's that was his sporting prime, just just taken away from him. And at the same time, why, why did why, why did none of my teammates, those the four other guys who were in the Tour de France with him, why why were they not, you know, kind of they only lost, you know, a few months here and there and stuff? So he he was annoyed with them. Having said all that, and I was, you know, cut him huge amounts of slack for the for the terrible things that had happened to him. It is, it is the case that when I did a bit more research on him, that he was always like that. He was like that before the Spanish Civil War, but again, I think it was, you know, very at that time, cycling was just a very dog eat dog kind of sport, and and these guys like Berendero, and most of the Spaniards of his era were from incredibly impoverished backgrounds, and they were, you know, he he was, you know, working for his for his supper from the age of kind of nine, collecting pigeons at this pigeon shoot and so on. It wasn't quite as bad as, as Bahamontes, who was the first Spaniard to win the Tour, who literally, you know, he's a little bit younger than Berendero, and he was growing up as a, as a kid at the end of the Civil War and, you know, eat, eating kind of cats and dogs and stuff like that. But it was, yeah, these these guys were, were they weren't just racing for glory. They were literally riding to to kind of eat, you know, in, the, in those races in Spain. You only got a hotel room if you won that stage. He never abandoned the race at all until I think he was, you know, I think his dad died in the middle of the 1948 Welter. One of the motorcyclists came out and said, have you heard the news? I said, what's older? Your dad's dead. It was like, literally, it was, a, it was a different age. So he did abandon. That was the first race he ever abandoned. Because if you abandoned, that was that was it. Just, oh, well, make, make your own way home then.
1: And you mentioned you were riding uh, one of his bikes, um, not from uh, 1941, but uh, sort of a a, a- bike that came from his shop probably in the 70s um uh, very for its time a really good bike five through one tubing campagnolo parts um but uh, you found it surprisingly rubbish compared to modern bikes
3: yes i did it was it was it's heavy i think that's the, the you know it's much heavier than the bikes i've been used to riding more recently and the gearing, oh, my God. I mean, uh, you know, like I do, I, I felt so aggrieved and thinking, please, please let this be something to do with my equipment, not the fact that I'm really old and not very good at cycling anymore, not what I ever was. But um, so I spent a lot of time, like, kind of, you know, Googling up kind of gear ratios of, of tour professionals. And the Robert Miller was a complete obsessive about this stuff. He used to really elaborate race diaries and write down all of his gear ratios for every single climb and went at what point he changed to what... And you know he's got he's got the same he's got the same sprockets as me. Like you know, as, as somebody who wins the actual you know King of the Mountains in the Tour de France, is, is I've got the same bike as him. So um, maybe that's why I'm finding it quite hard.
1: You've done the three Grand Tours now. Um, over twenty odd years, but um, how did the welter compare with the Tour de France and the Giro?
3: Well, yeah, I mean, it's it's of course because I've done my my the time scale at which I've completed those three things is uh, you know kind of a gigantic slice of my entire life. When I did the the Tour de France, thing, I was I was thirty five, and now I'm, I'm fifty seven. So. Having said that, I'm not sure whether it's because I am—I have more experience. I'm not saying it's because I'm fitter, because I'm not, or whether I just understand that, that how far you can push yourself and so on. But I have to say my average speed for this whole... I'm sorry to make this all about me. You didn't ask about me. You asked about the actual Vuelta. But here it is. My average speed was faster for this than it was when I did my Tour de France ride when I was uh, 21 years younger. Um, but, yeah, in t- apart from that... Um, I mean, Spain is, is massive. I mean, France is pretty big, but Spain, you really do get a sense of the enormity of the country and how how hugely empty loads of it is. And, I, and that's something that I didn't really ever happen to me in Italy or in in France, is that I kept making this mistake again and again and again of uh, just running out of food and then look at just looking ahead of me, you know, just at this great barren emptiness and thinking, oh God, not again. And then, you know, kind of it's so much easier for me than it was 21 years ago in terms of I've just got, you know, kind of uh, two phones. One is telling me exactly where I am, where I'm going to and and where, you know, I can phone up or whatever else. And then, of course, but then occasionally, oh, because Spain is big and empty and I haven't got any phone coverage and I just felt completely sort of blind. It's ridiculous to the extent, bearing in mind I didn't have any of that stuff when I did my tour de France how I've become reliant on these sorts of things. Uh, Nonetheless, it was, yeah, you know, just even though I had no excuse at all not to know where I was going and what might lie along the way between A and B, halfway to B, I would would run out of everything and um, sort of blunder to my destination in a kind of malnourished, um, dehydrated mess. Do you know what you're going to do next? To be honest, no, I, I always sort of think I have, have I said all there is to say about slightly unfit middle aged man goes up big hill? And then something like I say, people. I've, I've thought for a long time. Oh, well, it seems like the welter would be a good thing to do, but really, I'm not, is there really enough sort of history? Because I do, you know, I think if there's not enough kind of a, of a backstory to get me get me kind of into it, I haven't really got the the spiritual wherewithal to, to kind of carry it out. I and mean, if it's just a, you know me yet again, me having a bad time, um, being underprepared for this giant journey, well, I've, I've, I keep doing that, so I can't just rely on that for. for Pages and pages, um, and then I just blundered. Anyway, something always came to cross. I blundered across the story of Berendero Wow, what an amazing story! So I guess I'll just have to hope that happens again because I think the way I do my cycling is probably. I mean, it's it's terrible, and I feel like a total fraud compared to people like I'm sure you and certainly all of your listeners who are quite serious cyclists and do a lot of cycling on a regular basis. I do almost no cycling on a regular basis, and then every you know three years or so i go off and do much 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 too much of it but maybe that keeps my kind of a uh, so it's like oh i remember doing this now but i kind of I, I get the hunger the hunger is still there because i haven't haven't done too much of it
1: well look forward to whatever you do do um welter skelter by tim moore is out now it's published by jonathan cape and thanks for joining us tim
3: well thank you very much again